God, we give you praise and thanks for the foundational reality that you own it all. God, everything belongs to you. Lord, I pray that that truth would be connected to every area of our lives or the things that you've entrusted to us, including money. Lord, I pray as we approach this topic today about money and the money that you've given us, Lord, I pray for an openness today. I pray for a willingness for our hearts to receive what your word has to say about this important matter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I heard a story once about a man who got lost and was in need of directions. And he ran into another man who was unable to talk. He was mute. And he asked this man for directions. And uh, the mute man made signs with his hands to communicate, yeah, I'll give you directions, but you need to pay me money first. And so the man who was lost uh, paid this individual money And immediately, the man who was pretending to be mute began to speak with his words from his mouth and gave him directions. So the man that was lost was confused and asked him, why did you pretend to be mute until I paid you money? Well, the the man who was pretending to be mute said this, well, because in today's world, it is only money that talks. It's an interesting idea. I, I wonder, have you ever thought about if money could audibly talk? What would it tell us? It's an interesting question. If you thought about it even personally, if your money could talk, could communicate with you, what would it say that you love most? I heard one person say that if money does talk, uh, what it tells me is goodbye. It's always leaving. But if money could communicate with us, what would it say? I wonder if money would put on its counseling hat and and provide some counsel. I wonder if it would say, no matter how much of me that you have, you can't buy happiness. Or I wonder if money would say, you know, I'm a better tool than a destination. I'm a better means than an end. Or I wonder if money would remind us, hey, it doesn't matter how much you have of me, you can't take me with you after you die. So you might be surprised that your money talks. It communicates. It reveals things about your heart. But you might also be surprised that what money has to say lines up very closely with what the Bible says about money. This four-week sermon series that we've been in in the month of August that we've called Entrusted has not been primarily about money. We haven't talked about it yet. It's been primarily about how to be a faithful steward of the things that God has entrusted to us. In the first week, uh, we looked at some foundational principles about how to be a faithful steward. We, we learned and we were reminded that God owns it all. And we also looked at how the greatest enemy to faithful stewardship is having an owner mentality. And that's caused by this disease of mine. And then last week, we looked at the topic of time. That time is one of the most significant resources that God has given us, but it's also a non-renewable uh, commodity. And it's very, very scarce. So today, we are going to talk about money. And we have to. If I were to to preach a sermon series on stewardship and not talk about money, I would not be serving you very faithfully. Because like it or not, the Bible talks about money all of the time. In fact, Jesus talked about money a lot. Every third message that Jesus preached on was on money. 16 of the 38 parables We're concerned about how to handle your money and your possessions. Throughout the Gospels, an amazing one out of 10 verses deal directly with the subject of money. 
That's over 288 verses alone in the Gospels. Throughout the Bible, the Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. And yet, here's my concern this morning. My concern is that in our discipleship, and, and even in my preaching, we have been dangerously silent. Well, we're going to change that here this morning and talk about this important matter. I think it's helpful to be reminded that even though Jesus talked a lot about money, he didn't need money. There's no example in the Gospels of him taking up an offering or asking for money. But Jesus talked a lot about money because he knew that what we do with money and how we relate to money is the best indicator of our hearts. That Jesus knew that money talks. And what we do with money communicates and reveals what we love most, what we trust in, and what kingdom we are actually serving. So stewardship is not primarily about money, but money is all about stewardship. Now, I know there are some who are thinking right now in this moment, oh boy, here we go. You know, another church talking about money, another church that just wants to get into my wallet, right? And look, I... I, I want to acknowledge that that's maybe what some of us are, are thinking and feeling today. I don't know your, your past history uh, as it relates to money in the church, but I do want to acknowledge that there is probably a wide spectrum on this topic that's represented in this room. And I'm sure there are some who are probably saying to themselves right now, Pastor, get out of my wallet. My money is none of your business. This is not a topic that you can touch. And maybe others of us who, when you hear about this topic of money, you feel great shame, maybe even embarrassment because of the level of debt that you're in right now. Maybe others of us are thinking, man, I, I don't like this topic because at a previous church I gave money and that church mishandled my money, and so there's a lack of trust. Or maybe you're thinking, man, this is all the church talks about. Every time I turn on the TV, there's a preacher on the TV that's asking for money, and you'll have some special healing or some spiritual covering. And so I don't like this topic in the church at all. It's talked about way too much. Look, I, I want to acknowledge those different and various realities, and I do want to say that I'm deeply sorry if there was a church, maybe in your past, or the church that has mishandled this topic for you. But all I want to do today is I want to look at what the Bible has to say about money. I want to just draw your attention. No agenda. We're not taking up an offering after the service. I, I want to draw your attention. What does the Word of God have to say about this topic? And, and hear me, not because of what I want from you, but because of what I want for you. Now, another thing to acknowledge is that one of the great challenges today, and maybe you can relate to this, is maybe some of us here this morning, you might want to tune me out because you don't consider yourself to be wealthy. You might not consider yourself to be rich or to have a lot of money. So all that the Bible has to say, all these warnings and the dangers of money, maybe for you, you're like, that doesn't really apply to me. That applies to people who are rich. But you actually might be more rich than you realize. Let me give you some statistics to give us some perspective here. Globally, approximately 6 billion people live on less than $13,000 per year. Nearly half the world's population lives on less than $2 per day. 
If you had an income of more than $40,000 last year, you were in the richest 2% of the world's population. Let's think historically. Economists tell us that the average American today is much richer, uh, roughly 90 times richer than the average individual throughout history. And so look, you could always find somebody who has more money than you, someone who's richer, who has more wealth, of course. But I want to suggest to us today that the definition of rich, wealthy, and even this understanding of that category throughout the Bible probably applies to us in a much broader way than we might realize. So here's my goal. Just put my cards on the table for you today before we jump in, is I want to show us how money and what we do with it is one of the most practical ways that a Christian expresses his or her commitment to Jesus. Okay, that's what I want to show us, that money, just like time, is the thing or, or the place where our true passions and priorities and values are demonstrated, that what we do with our money reveals our worship. So as we move through this passage, I'm going to show us the the warning of money, the strategy of greed, and how to be a faithful steward of this resource. Let's jump in here and look at the strategy of greed. Number one, we're going to come back to verses 6 through 8 in just a moment. I want to look at verses 9 and 10 because there's a really, really helpful cautionary posture towards money that is essential if you want to be a faithful steward of this resource. Before we get into the, the details of this, I do want to point out, I think I need to say this, that the warning that Paul gives here is not that money is in and of itself evil or sinful. Okay, we just need to say that, right? You look at verse 10, the second sentence there, he says that some have wandered away from the faith. Some, not, not all who are rich, just some. So having money... Being wealthy, having possessions, going on vacations, that's not in and of itself sinful, all right? In fact, there are two extremes as we talk about money in this topic that we need to avoid today. One extreme is believing in the prosperity gospel, okay? The prosperity gospel believes that God primarily blesses his people, loves his people, shows favor to his people by making them healthy, wealthy, and happy, all right? So if you're not Uh, healthy, wealthy, and happy, then God isn't blessing. God doesn't love you. God isn't showing you favor. That's an unbiblical teaching and mindset to have. But then there's another extreme that we need to avoid, which is poverty theology. Poverty theology believes that the only way to be a faithful Christian is by being poor. That if you have possessions, if you are wealthy, if you have money or a lot of money, then there's no way you can be a faithful Christian. Those are two extremes that we need to avoid as we tackle this topic because there is something deeper here that Paul is getting at with this warning about money, and it has to do with the heart. I want you to see something in these two verses here. The, The level of emphasis that Paul has on desire talks about it twice, on love talks about that once, and craving he talks about that once. All of those things, all of those realities reside in the heart. So by targeting the heart, Paul is helping us to understand that to be a faithful steward about money and even our possessions comes about not by attacking the symptoms, not by addressing the fruit, but by getting to the root and the source, which is in the heart. See, 
Paul's not going to lay out before us that you need to give X percent away to God's kingdom. He's not going to say that. He's not going to say, if you have X amount of money in your bank account, then that's sinful. No, he's not going to allow us to just hover around these symptoms and the fruit. He wants to get to the heart of it and the root of it and the source of, of, of everything related to this topic because those symptoms come from what's in the heart. See, Paul's going to show us that the battleground of greed lies in here. And there's a strategy that greed wants to employ in all of our lives. Let me point out a couple steps in this strategy. Number one, verse nine, Paul points out that it begins with having this desire to be rich. Now, this desire that Paul's talking about here is the type of desire that shapes your priorities and your values. It's the type of desire that, that controls your behavior and your decision-making. It's the type of desire that views money as the primary mechanism to, to, uh, to experience satisfaction. Now, Paul says when, when this type of idolatrous desire or greed comes into your heart, it hijacks your heart and it begins to produce all kinds of sinful behaviors in one's life. Notice, after this sinful desire has taken root in your heart, the second step in verse 9 is that we fall into temptation. Now, falling is kind of a weird experience. Falling comes about because you didn't see it coming, right? It takes you off guard. You're, you're not looking in the right direction, and you trip or you stumble or you fall into a hole, that's Paul's idea here as it relates to greed or this idolatrous desire for money. It has a way of causing us to look in directions that we shouldn't. And so unlike contentment, when you're greedy, you're always looking for more. Your eyes are open. You're, you're searching. You're, you're looking for satisfaction, usually in places that God doesn't want you to look. And so this looking and this searching, it, it opens yourself up to all kinds of temptations and opportunities and environments whereby your heart can be lured into sinful behavior with the use of money. Verse 10, Paul builds off that and describes it this way, that having a love for money, not having money, but having a love for money is the root of all kinds of sin. So what you love in your heart comes out in how you live. Did you know that? And specifically here, if you love money, then the fruit in your life will be all kinds of sinful and bad things. This can lead you into the sin of envy and covetousness, greed, pride, lust, relational strife. It, it can lead to having a, an unhealthy relationship with work. It can lead to, to polluting your marriage, kind of being absent in your relationships, lead you to being absent to opportunities to do good that God provides for you. And I want to point out here also that this falling into temptation is oftentimes successful because this greedy desire is more like a trap. It's actually a snare. If you look at verse 9, Paul says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. And there is a very real sense in which being greedy and finding your worth and your financial stability feels like a trap. 
just to illustrate this point, the book Where the Red Fern Grows, there's a section in there that I think illustrates this beautifully. The book's about this, this boy, little boy named Billy, who has these two coon dogs, Ann and Dan, takes place in the Ozark Mountains. And there's a part where Billy is trying to, he's trying to capture raccoons. He's trying to trap them. And, and, and he knew that raccoons love shiny objects, right? If raccoons see a shiny object, they're going to maybe hold on to it or stare at it for an extended period of time. And if it's part of a trap, they'll actually stare at that object, that shiny object, until the hunter comes back and captures it. Look, that is, a, I think, a beautiful picture of what Paul is actually saying here about money and this desire for money. That the desire for money, the trappings of wealth, are the shiny objects. That wealth accumulation and wealth preservation can so easily become our goal, our pursuit, and our drive, when in reality it is a trap. There is an illusion towards being financially stable that the very walls of financial security and and stability can actually turn into a gilded cage of being trapped in this insatiable desire, this, this rat race of I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more. And that unchecked, insatiable desire and and even selfish ambition for more ends up being a trap. This is part of the strategy of greed. Now, before we get to the last step here, I just want to maybe pause here for a moment and, and just ask you, in what specific way Are you experiencing greed's trap right now in your life? What does this look like for you? I wonder if you're experiencing the trap of discontentment that says on a consistent basis, I need more, I need more, I need more. Or maybe it's the trap of security where you think to yourself, if I have a certain amount of money, then I'm going to be secure, then I'll feel safe. I wonder if it's the trap of power, where you believe that having a lot of money creates more options and more opportunities and more freedom, therefore I have more power. Or maybe it's the trap of satisfaction, that having a lot of money means that I can buy A, B, C, D, E, and I'll be fulfilled. There's all kinds of traps, all kinds of snares that greed wants to place in our lives. We need to be aware of those trappings. We need to be um, aware so that we'll not fall into them. But we need to be aware of them because finally, look at the last step in greed strategy. Verse 9, it's destruction. Paul says at the end there, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Notice Paul saying that this desire for money, this this gateway drug of a desire for money culminates in the final destination of ruin and destruction. This word here that Paul uses, plunge, is a really interesting word. In Paul's day, that was a word that most often was used to describe a boat that was sinking into the sea. This is kind of a graphic picture, but it's really helpful. Paul here is painting a picture of these greedy desires that serve as weights that drag a person down into the sea of despair and sin and drowns them. That ruin and destruction here refer to the eternal condition 
of one who puts their trust in money and not in God. As Jesus put it in Matthew 6, you cannot serve both God and money. Look, do you feel the weight of this? Do you feel the, the warning, the, the danger in these verses, in the word selection that Paul has here? Verse 10, Paul goes as far as to say that some have wandered away from the faith due to this desire to be rich. This is a big deal. Paul's language is unmistakable. Look at the, look at the words, temptation, trap, harmful desires, ruin, destruction, wandering away from the faith, piercing themselves. And this is language. If you think I'm just selecting this one passage, this language is congruent throughout the whole Bible as it relates to the danger of money. Let me give you a couple of examples. Jesus says in Luke 12, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Or how about King Solomon? who's one of the richest men to ever live, Ecclesiastes 5 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Proverbs 11, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Jesus again says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. That it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 6, Jesus, again, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Man, reading those passages, reading our primary text this morning, all I see is warning, warning, warning when it comes to money. This desire to be rich and to have money, we might as well view it as fire. Just to be biblically congruent here, with fire, no one plays around with fire, right? No one gets as close as they possibly can to fire. Like you have a cautionary posture and mentality when you're around fire. My question for us today is, do you have that same type of posture and mentality towards money? Are you on guard about this desire for money, do you understand that this might be the most destructive force in your spiritual life? Are you aware of greed's strategy and how they're specifically being applied in your own heart, in your own life? Or are you here today and you're just kind of feeling like you're immune to this particular temptation? That these passages, these verses don't really apply to you because after all, you're not that rich. Look, church, I, I love you dearly. I love you dearly, which is why I feel so compelled to say this morning that because of the area in which we live in, there may not be a more powerful and destructive temptation than money and possessions. And it's so sneaky. Oh, it is so sneaky. The trappings and the snares that you and I experience on a daily basis are barely recognizable because of the area that we live in. And the reason why it's so powerful is because money and possessions come with them, a spiritual reality that can reign in our hearts. That if, unless we're careful, we can allow money and possessions to actually define us. Have you ever purchased something new and felt immediately better about yourself? You know, you get a new iPhone, 
and you automatically feel better about who you are, feel more secure, you just feel like a better person, right? You get a new pair of jeans that fits perfectly, right? And, and you, you got more confidence, right? You feel better about yourself. You feel more satisfied, more secure. What is that? What's underneath that? Because you didn't change. That, that iPhone, that pair of jeans didn't change you. You're still the same person. It's because money and possessions have a powerful spiritual reality that promises us satisfaction and security and power and happiness and an identity, but it also demands your worship. And that is why it is so dangerous and it can be so destructive in our own lives. Man, when you feel down, when you're not doing well, and you say to yourself, I just gotta go to Target. I just gotta go. I, I gotta go buy something. Do you know what that is? That's worship. I need to go get some dopamine hits, purchase some things. That's worship. When you look at your bank account and you see that number, and there's something in your heart that just exhales for a moment ah, security, ah, safety, power options. That is worship. And I just want to call us to that because sometimes we don't think about it in those terms. So we could apply that to many other areas, but I want to point out this is dangerous and in ways that we're not always aware of. See, money is not just a stewardship issue. It has the potential to do great harm to our souls that it can be a currency of corruption because it can be a trap leading to other kinds of sins. C.S. Lewis said that wealth has a way of knitting a man's heart to the world. So that's the strategy. That's the warning of money and greed here. What's the solution here, right? This is a resource. This is something that God entrusts to us. So what is the remedy? Well, Part of the solution here, I think, is found in verses 6 through 8, where Paul will present this category of godliness and contentment. And I think these verses are the key to understanding how money can actually be a currency for Christ's likeness, where if we have the right mentality about money, we can actually move from here of being tight-fisted with our money to being wisely open-handed because we understand God owns it all. It all belongs to God. Every dime is actually his. And so what does it look like to be a faithful steward of those things? Well, Paul says, having a godly contentment. Look at verses six through eight. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Notice, Paul not only tells us to be content, but he shows us why contentment is so valuable. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain, and it has nothing to do with how much money or how many possessions that you have. Notice what Paul's doing here. Paul is introducing a new scorecard for calculating how rich one is. And it has nothing to do with accumulating more wealth or, or possessions or money, and it has everything to do. If you're a follower of Jesus, it has everything to do with having this godliness with 
contentment. Don't miss this. This is huge. Godliness is your pursuit of becoming more and more and more satisfied with Jesus so that you end up looking more and more like Jesus. Contentment is being satisfied with what you currently have. Contentment is eliminating the mentality of I need more, I need more, I need more, because your heart is convinced Jesus is enough. And contentment is connected to godliness here because if you're pursuing being satisfied with Jesus, if he truly is your ultimate treasure, then what that will do for you practically is that will serve as a protective lid around your heart, protecting you against the strategy of greed. Because when you stack up anything to Jesus, when you stack up possessions and money and wealth and whatever it is, and you compare that to the beauty and the satisfaction and the greatness of Jesus, all of these things will always fall short. Look, this is so important here. Like when you, when you understand how satisfying Jesus is, how fulfilling he is, how beautiful he is, it reorients your cravings. When you understand all that Jesus went through in order to purchase your salvation, all that Jesus went through to remove your sin debt, to offer you forgiveness and mercy and grace and everlasting life, when you understand all those things, it changes what's going on in here. Would you understand that Jesus is yours and that you belong to Jesus and, and your eternal destiny is forever secure and all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are yours because you're in Christ? You no longer look to the things of this world to satisfy you because everything you need, everything you want is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Look, being satisfied in Christ changes our understanding of contentment. That godliness with contentment is great gain because no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, no matter if you have a lot or if you're in need, you can experience satisfaction the way that you were designed if Jesus is on the throne of your heart. And this frees us up. It frees us up when, when you're considering buying a new car and, and you look at this new car and you say to yourself, that's nice, that's gonna fit these needs here, but that won't satisfy what's in here. That won't satisfy my deepest longings. Only Jesus can. It frees you up now to make purchases and to view possessions, to view money in a godly way, a biblical way, where, where it reorients your priorities. Or on the other end of the spectrum, if you're having Easy Mac for dinner, ramen noodles, and you're like, man, I don't have a lot, you can still declare Jesus is my ultimate treasure. He supplies all of my needs. See, it comes back to Jesus, and it really boils down to this question today, church. Are you satisfied with Jesus and Jesus alone? Are you satisfied? Is your soul satisfied with King Jesus. I'm not asking you if you like Jesus. I'm not asking you if you're fond of Jesus. I'm asking you a deeper and harder question. Is your soul satisfied with Christ? 
Is he your ultimate, ultimate treasure? Or do you like Jesus, but you need a Jesus plus something else in order to be satisfied? Do you need a Jesus plus a certain number in my bank account to be satisfied? A Jesus plus a new house, a new car, a new toy, a whatever possession it is in order to be satisfied. Look, it comes down to that question. And Paul helps us. He reminds us in verses 7 through 8, look, you came into this world with nothing. You're going to leave this world with nothing. The only thing that you can take with you is your relationship with Jesus. And I just wonder if some may get to heaven one day and they can barely recognize Jesus, because they spent the majority of their time on the earth looking for the next thing, the next purchase, the next toy, the next possession, the next this, and your desires were not being satisfied in Jesus, but you were on that rat race, that insatiable desire trapment of discontentment. Look, church, I don't want us to be deceived with money. I don't want us to be deceived with even how dangerous money can be and to miss Jesus. That faithful stewardship of this important resource begins with being satisfied with him that results and leads towards a godly contentment. Well, as I close this morning, I want to finish with the last point, the third one here, and that is the result of godly contentment, faithful stewardship, is generous giving. We'll talk more about this next week as it relates to generosity. But the question is, is, how do you know that you're doing this well? How do you know that you're a faithful steward of this resource? Paul will call us to being generous in our giving. Paul will actually say in verses 17 through 19 that the result of godly contentment is one who is generously giving, being rich in good works and storing up treasures in heaven. Look, to summarize these verses quickly here, if contentment is the attitude, then generosity is the action. All right, look at verse 18, just for a moment here. Specifically, he commands the wealthy, which is all of us, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. That is describing somebody who is living open-handed with what God has entrusted to them. And this is part of the remedy to self-absorbed spending, to being a servant to money, that generous giving is the medicine for a heart that's finding its worth in what one has. That generous giving is an assault on the unbiblical mindset that what I have belongs to me, it's mine. Generous giving is a declaration that I don't need the things of this world to satisfy me. I have Jesus, and that's all that I need. A generous giving is the most practical way to demonstrate that you actually believe in the gospel. And look, I just want to stress this. This is not, this message is not what I want from you. It is what I want for you. This is not about getting money out of your pockets. It's about getting idols out of your heart. That Jesus doesn't want your wallets. He wants something more than your wallet. He wants your hearts. And if you evaluated your life simply by looking at your checkbook, if your money could talk, what would it say that you love 
the most. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your hearts will be also. That your treasure leads you to your worship. God wants our hearts. He wants our worship. And so in light of that, can I just suggest four quick application points. If you're looking for ways to apply this, to take some steps, and to be a faithful steward, just kind of boots on the ground here, let me offer you four ways to do this. And and I understand most of us, a lot of us are maybe already doing these four steps, and praise the Lord for that. These will be more of reminders. But quickly, here's the first thing I'd encourage you to do, is to include financial giving into your discipleship. When we think about discipleship, we have all kinds of topics and categories, Bible study and prayer and marriage and sexual purity and all of these things. Why not financial giving? Why not looking at your spending? Why not look at how and where your money is going? Do you have accountability in in that area? Do you have someone that you trust that's looking at your money and what you're investing into? We need accountability in this area. Number two here, though, I'd encourage you to create more margin, not to spend more or to save more, but to give more. And, and look, this demands making a budget. Right? Money is too dangerous to be loose with our spending. Like our, our hearts won't do well with that, and no matter how much money that you have. And so if you're thinking, well, I'm not very good at, with an Excel spreadsheet. I'm not very good at a budget. We have several people in our church where this is kind of their gifting, who are godly, they would love to meet with you. Just confidentially, just sit down and and walk through how to make a budget, how to think through how to apply biblical principles towards spending and saving and giving and investing, just to get practical about where you are in your life and looking at biblical principles. If you want to email anybody on staff, we can direct you to the right people just to help you. And then thirdly here, I would challenge you to take one simple and small step to give more. And look, whether that's here at this church or a different ministry or missionaries, like that's fine. Like whatever that looks like for you. But this is a challenge to continue to cultivate the life-giving habit of generosity. And so if you're someone that's like, you know what, we've been given 10% to kingdom work, my challenge with you, move it to 11. Like if you're at 15, move it to, to 17 and just see how the Lord will work in your generous giving. And then lastly here, and most importantly, focus on your heart first. This is, this is huge. This is like everything. We'll unpack this more next week, but your motives matter when it comes to generosity. More of Jesus leads to godly contentment, which results in this open-handed generosity because God owns it all. All right, let's pray together. God, we thank you and we do praise you for, Lord, your generosity. God, we can't fathom all that you have given to us. Lord, as we've talked about already this morning, you have given us Jesus. You sent him to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, we thank you for that gift. Lord, we are eternally grateful for not only giving Jesus and providing a way to be saved, but you have given us blessing after blessing after blessing. Lord, your generosity has no end to it. And Lord, I pray as we think about being faithful stewards of what you've given to us, God, give us wisdom, give us courage, or give us spiritual vision and sight to see temptations that are all around us when it comes to money and possessions. 
God, help us to be wise and shrewd in this area, to be able to be generous, to give more to kingdom work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.